Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 16, The Ship In bed, we concocted our plans for the morrow. But to my surprise and no small concern, Queequeg now gave me to understand that he had been diligently consulting Yojo, the name of his black little god, and Yojo had told him two or three times over, and strongly insisted upon it every way, that instead of our going together among the whaling fleet in harbor, and in concert selecting our craft, instead of this, I say, Yojo earnestly enjoined that the selection of the ship should rest wholly with me. Inasmuch as Yojo purposed befriending us, and, in order to do so, had already pitched upon a vessel which, if left to myself, I, Ishmael, should infallibly light upon for all the world as though it had turned out by chance, and in that vessel I must immediately ship myself, for the present irrespective of Queequeg. I have forgotten to mention that, in many things, Queequeg placed great confidence in the excellence of Yojo's judgment and surprising forecast of things, and cherished Yojo with considerable esteem. As a rather good sort of god, who perhaps meant well enough upon the whole, but in all cases did not succeed in his benevolent designs. Now, this plan of Queequeg's, or rather Yojo's, touching the selection of our craft, I did not like that plan at all. I had not a little relied upon Queequeg's sagacity to point out the whaler best fitted to carry us and our fortune securely. But as all my remonstrance produced no effect upon Queequeg, I was obliged to acquiesce, and accordingly prepared to set about this business with a determined rushing sort of energy and vigor that should quickly settle that trifling little affair. Next morning, early, leaving Queequeg shut up with Yojo in our little bedroom, for it seemed that it was some sort of Lent or Ramadan, or day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer with Queequeg and Yojo that day. How it was, I could never find out, for though I applied myself to it several times, I never could master his liturgies and 34 articles, leaving Queequeg then, fasting on his tomahawk pipe, and Yojo warming himself at his sacrificial fire of shavings, I sallied out among the shipping. After much prolonged sauntering and many random inquiries, I learnt that there were three ships up for three years' voyages, the Devil Dam, the Titbit, and the Pequod. Devil Dam, I do not know the origin of. Titbit is obvious. Pequod, you will no doubt remember was the name of a celebrated tribe of Massachusetts Indians, now extinct as the ancient Medes. I peered and pried about the Devil Dam, from her hopped over to the Titbit, and finally, going on board the Pequod, looked around her for a moment, and then decided that this was the very ship for us. You may have seen many a quaint craft in your day, for aught I know, square-toed luggers, mountainous Japanese junks, butter-box galliots, and what not. But take my word for it, you never saw such a rare old craft as this same rare old Pequod. She was a ship of the old school, rather small, if anything, with an old-fashioned claw-footed look about her, long-seasoned in weather, stained in the typhoons and the calms of all four oceans, Her old hull's complexion was darkened like a French grenadier's, who was alike fought in Egypt and Siberia. Her venerable bows looked bearded. Her masts cut somewhere on the coast of Japan, where her original ones were lost overboard in a gale. Her masts stood stiffly up like the spines of the three old kings of Cologne. Her ancient decks were worn and wrinkled, like the pilgrim-worshipped flagstone in Canterbury Cathedral where Becket bled. But to all these her old antiquities were added new and marvelous features, pertaining to the wild business that for more than half a century she had followed. Old Captain Peleg, many years her chief mate, 
before he commanded another vessel of his own, and now a retired seaman, and one of the principal owners of the Pequod, this old Peleg, during the term of his chief mateship, had built upon her original grotesqueness, and inlaid it all over with a quaintness both of material and device, unmatched by anything except it be Thorkill Hake's carved buckler or bedstead. She was appareled like any barbaric Ethiopian emperor, his neck heavy with pendants of polished ivory. She was a thing of trophies, a cannibal of a craft, tricking herself forth in the chaste bones of her enemies. All around, her unpaneled open bulwarks were garnished like one continuous jaw, with the long, sharp teeth of the sperm well. Inserted there for pins to fasten her old hempen thews and tendons too. Those thews ran not through base blocks of land wood, but deftly traveled over sheaves of sea ivory. Scorning a turnstile wheel at her reverend helm, she sported there a tiller, and that tiller was in one mass, curiously carved from the long, narrow lower jaw of her hereditary foe. The helmsman who steered by that tiller in a tempest felt like the tartar when he holds back his fiery steed by clutching its jaw. A noble craft, but somehow a most melancholy. All noble things are touched with that. Now, when I looked about the quarterdeck for someone having authority, in order to propose myself as a candidate for the voyage, at first I saw nobody, but I could not well overlook a strange sort of tent, or rather wigwam, pitched a little behind the main mast. It seemed only a temporary erection used in port. It was of a conical shape, some ten feet high, consisting of the long, huge slabs of limber black bone taken from the middle and highest part of the jaws of the right whale. Planted with their broad ends on the deck, a circle of these slabs laced together mutually sloped towards each other, and at the apex united in a tufted point, where the loose hairy fibers waved to and fro like the topknot on some old Patawatami Sakem's head. A triangular opening faced towards the bow of the ship, so that the insider commanded a complete view forward. And half concealed in this queer tenement, I at length found one who by his aspect seemed to have authority, and who, it being noon and the ship's work suspended, was now enjoying respite from the burden of command. He was seated on an old-fashioned oaken chair, wriggling all over with curious carving, and the bottom of which was formed of a stout interlacing of the same elastic stuff of which the wigwam was constructed. There was nothing so very particular, perhaps, about the appearance of the elderly man I saw. He was brown and brawny, like most old seamen, and heavily rolled up in blue pilot cloth, cut in the Quaker style. Only there was a fine and almost microscopic network of the minutest wrinkles interlacing round his eyes, which must have risen from his continual sailings in many hard gales, and always looking to windward. For this causes the muscles about the eyes to become pursed together. Such eye wrinkles are very effectual in a scowl. Is this the captain of the Pequod, said I, advancing to the door of the tent? Supposing it be the captain of the Pequod, what dost thou want of him? He demanded. I was thinking of shipping. Thou wast, wast thou? I see thou art no Nantucketer. Ever been in a stove boat? No, sir, I never have. Dost know nothing at all about whaling? I dare say, eh? Nothing, sir, but I have no doubt I shall soon learn. I've been several voyages in the merchant service, and I think that merchant service be damned. Talk not that lingo to me. Dost see that leg? I'll take that leg away from thy stern, if ever thou talkest of the merchant service to me again. Merchant service indeed. I suppose now ye feel considerable proud of having served in those marchant ships. But flukes, man, what makes thee want to go a-wailing, eh? It looks a little suspicious, don't it, eh? Hast not been a pirate, hast thou? 
Didst not rob thy last captain, didst thou? Dost not think of murdering the officer when thou gettest to sea? I protested my innocence of these things. I saw that under the mask of these half-humorous innuendos, this old seaman, as an insulated Quakerish Nantucketer, was full of his insular prejudices, and rather distrustful of all aliens unless they hailed from Cape Cod or the vineyard. But what takes thee a whaling? I want to know that before I think of shipping ye. Well, sir, I want to see what whaling is. I want to see the world. Want to see what whaling is, eh? Have ye clapped eye on Captain Ahab? Who is Captain Ahab, sir? Aye, aye, I thought so. Captain Ahab is the captain of this ship. I am mistaken, then. I thought I was speaking to the captain himself. Thou art speaking to Captain Peleg. That's who ye are speaking to, young man. It belongs to me and Captain Bildad to see the Pequod fitted out for the voyage and supplied with all her needs, including crew. We are part owners and agents, but as I was going to say, if thou wantest to know what whaling is, as thou tellest ye do, I can put ye in a way of finding it out before ye bind yourself to it, past backing out. Clap eye on Captain Ahab, young man, and thou wilt find that he has only one leg. What do you mean, sir? Was the other lost by a whale? Lost by a whale! Young man, come nearer to me. It was devoured, chewed up, crunched by the monstrous parmacetti that ever chipped a boat. Ah! Ah! I was a little alarmed by his energy, perhaps also a little touched at the hearty grief in his concluding exclamation, but said as calmly as I could, What you say is no doubt true enough, sir, but how could I know there was any peculiar ferocity in that particular whale, though indeed I might have inferred as much from the simple fact of the accident? Look ye now, young man, thy lungs are sort of soft. Jesse, thou dost not talk shark a bit. Sure, ye've been to sea before now. Sure of that? Sir, said I, I thought I told you that I had been four voyages in the merchant. Hard down out of that. Mind what I said about the merchant service. Don't aggravate me. I won't have it. But let us understand each other. I have given thee a hint about what whaling is. Do ye yet feel inclined for it? I do, sir. Very good. Now art thou the man to pitch a harpoon down a live whale's throat and then jump after it? Answer quick. I am, sir, if it should be positively indispensable to do so, not to be got rid of, that is, which I don't take to be the fact. Good again. Now then, Thou not only wantest to go a-whaling, to find out by experience what whaling is, but ye also want to go in order to see the world. Was that not what ye said? I thought so. Well then, just step forward there and take a peep over the weather-bow, and then back to me and tell me what ye see there. For a moment I stood a little puzzled by this curious request, not knowing exactly how to take it whether humorously or in earnest, but concentrating on all his crow's feet into one scowl, Captain Peleg started me on the errand. Going forward and glancing over the weather bow, I perceived that the ship swinging to her anchor with the flood tide was now obliquely pointing towards the open ocean. The prospect was unlimited, but exceedingly monotonous and forbidding, not the slightest variety that I could see. Well, what's the report? said Peleg when I came back. What did ye see? Not much, I replied. Nothing but water. Considerable horizon, though. And there's a squall coming up, I think. Well, what does thou think, then, of seeing the world? Do ye wish to go round Cape Horn to see any more of it? Eh? Can't you see the world where you stand? I was a little staggered, 
but go a-whaling I must, and I would, and the Pequod was as good a ship as any, I thought the best, and all this I now repeated to Peleg, seeing me so determined he expressed, and thou mayest as well sign the papers right off, he added, come along with ye, and so saying he led the way below deck into the cabin. Seated on the transom was what seemed to me a most uncommon and surprising figure. It turned out to be Captain Bilbad, who, along with Captain Peleg, was one of the largest owners of the vessel. The other shares, as is sometimes the case in these ports, being held by a crowd of old annuitants, widows, fatherless children, and chancery wards, each owning about the value of a timberhead or a foot of plank, or a nail or two in the ship. People in Nantucket invest their money in whaling vessels, the same way that you do yours in approved state stocks, bringing in good interest. Now Bilbad, like Peleg, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect, and to this day its inhabitants in general retain an uncommon measure of the peculiarities of the Quaker only variously and anonymously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. So that there are instances among them of men who, named with scriptured names, a singularly common fashion on the island, and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still, from the audacious daring and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these unoutgrown peculiarities. A thousand bold dashes of character, not unworthy a Scandinavian sea king or a poetical pagan Roman, And when these things unite in a man of greatly superior natural force, with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who also has, by the stillness and seclusion of many long night watches in the remotest waters, and beneath constellations never seen here at the north, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions of fresh from her own virgin voluntary and confiding breast, and thereby chiefly, but with some help from accidental advantage, to learn a bold and nervous lofty language, that man makes one in a whole nation census a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. Nor will it at all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances he have what seems a half-wilful, overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men, tragically great, are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. But as yet we have not to do with such a one, but with quite another, and still a man, who, if indeed peculiar, it only results again from another phrase of the Quaker, modified by individual circumstances. Like Captain Peleg, Captain Bildad was a well-to-do, retired whaleman. But unlike Captain Peleg, who cared not a rush for what are called serious things, and indeed seemed those self-same serious things the veriest of all trifles, Captain Bildad had not only been originally educated according to the strictest sect of Nantucket Quakerism, but all his subsequent ocean life and the sight of many unclad, lovely island creatures round the horn, all that had not moved this native-born Quaker one single jot, had not so much as altered one angle of his vest. Still, for all his immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildad? Though refusing from conscientious scruples to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had illimitably invaded the Atlantic and Pacific. And though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of leviathan gore. 
How now, in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence? I do not know, but it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. This world pays dividends, rising from a little cabin boy in short clothes of the drabest drab, to a harpooner in a broad shad-bellied waistcoat, from that becoming boatheader, chief mate, and captain, and finally a ship owner. Bildad, as I hinted before, had concluded his adventurous career by wholly retiring from active life at the goodly age of sixty, and dedicating his remaining days to the quiet receiving of his well-earned income. Now, Bildad, I am sorry to say, had the reputation of being an incorrigible old hunks, and in his sea-going days, a bitter, hard taskmaster. They told me in Nantucket, though it certainly seems a curious story, that when he sailed the old Kattegat whaleman, his crew, upon arriving home, were mostly all carried ashore to the hospital, sore, exhausted, and worn out. For a pious man, especially for a Quaker, he was certainly rather hard-hearted, to say the least. He never used to swear, though, at his men, they said, but somehow he got an inordinate quantity of cruel, unmitigated hard work out of them. When Bildad was a chief mate, to have his drab-colored eye intently looking at you made you feel completely nervous till you could clutch something, a hammer or a marling spike, and go to work like mad at something or other, never mind what. Indolence and idleness perished before him. His own person was the exact embodiment of his utilitarian character. On his long, gaunt body, he carried no spare flesh, no superfluous beard, his chin having a soft, economical nap to it, like the worn nap of his broad-brimmed hat. Such, then, was the person that I saw seated on the transom when I followed Captain Peleg down into the cabin. The space between the decks was small, and there, bolt upright, sat old Bildad, who always sat so and never leaned, and this to save his coattails. His broad brim was placed beside him, his legs were stiffly crossed, his drab vesture was buttoned up to his chin, and spectacles on the nose. He seemed absorbed in reading from a ponderous volume. Bildad, cried Captain Peleg, at it again, Bildad, eh? Ye have been studying those scriptures now for the last thirty years, certain to my knowledge. How far ye got, Bildad? As if long habituated to such profane talk from his old shipmate, Bildad, without noticing his present irreverence, quietly looked up and, seeing me, glanced again inquiringly towards Peleg. He says he's our man, Bildad, said Peleg. He wants to ship. Dust thee, said Bildad, in a hollow tone and turning round to me. I dust? said I, unconsciously, he was so intense a Quaker. What do ye think of him, Bildad, said Peleg? He'll do, said Bildad, eyeing me, and then went on spelling away at his book in a mumbling tone quite audible. I thought him the queerest old Quaker I ever saw, especially as Peleg, his friend and old shipmate, seemed such a blusterer. But I said nothing, only looking round me sharply. Peleg now threw open a chest and, drawing forth the ship's articles, placed a pen and ink before him and seated himself at a little table. I began to think it was high time to settle with myself at what terms I would be willing to engage for the voyage. I was already aware that in the whaling business they paid no wages, but all hands, including the captain, received certain shares of the profits called lays and that these lays were proportioned to the degree of importance pertaining to the respective duties of the ship's company. I was also aware that being a green hand at whaling, my own lay would not be very large, but considering that I was used to the sea, could steer a ship, 
splice a rope, and all that, I made no doubt that from all I had heard I should be offered at least the 275th lay, that is, the 275th part of the clear net proceeds of the voyage, whatever that might eventually amount to. And though the 275th lay was what they called a rather long lay, yet it was better than nothing. And if we had a lucky voyage, might pretty nearly pay for the clothing I would wear out on it, not to speak of my three years' beef and board, for which I would not have to pay one stiver. It might be thought that this was a poor way to accumulate a princely fortune, and so it was, a very poor way indeed. But I am one of those that never take on about princely fortunes, and am quite content if the world is ready to board and lodge me, while I am putting up at this grim sign of the thunder cloud. Upon the whole, I thought that the 275th lay would be about the fair thing, but would not have been surprised had I been offered the 200th, considering I was a broad-shouldered make. But one thing, nevertheless, that made me a little distrustful about receiving a generous share of the profits was this. Ashore, I had heard something of both Captain Peleg and his unaccountable old crony Bildad, how that they being the principal proprietors of the Pequod, therefore the other and more inconsiderable and scattered owners, left nearly the whole management of the ship's affairs to these two. And I did not know but what the stingy old Bildad might have a mighty deal to say about shipping hands, especially as I now found him on board the Pequod, quite at home there in the cabin and reading his Bible as if at his own fireside. Now while Peleg was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, old Bildad, to my no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party in these proceedings, Bildad never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book. Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth. Well, Captain Bildad, interrupted Peleg, What'd ye say? What lay shall we give this young man? Thou knowest best, was the sepulchral reply. The seven hundred and seventy-seventh wouldn't be too much, would it? Where moth and rust do corrupt, but lay? Lay indeed, thought I, and such a lay. The seven hundred and seventy-seventh? Well, old Bildad, you are determined that I, for one, shall not lay up many lays here below, where moth and rust do corrupt. It was an exceedingly long lay, that indeed, and though from the magnitude of the figure it might at first deceive a landsman, yet the slightest consideration will show that though 777 is a pretty large number, yet when you come to make a tenth of it, you will see then... I say that the 777th part of a farthing is a good deal less than 777 gold doubloons, and so I thought at the time. Why, blast your eyes, Bildad, cried Peleg. Thou dost not want to swindle this young man. He must have more than that. 777th, again said Bildad, without lifting his eyes, and then went on mumbling, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I am going to put him down for three hundredth, said Peleg. Do ye hear that, Bildad? The three hundredth lay, I say. Bildad laid down his book and turning solemnly towards him said, Captain Peleg, thou hast a generous heart, but thou must consider the duty thou owest to the other owners of this ship widows and orphans, many of them, and that if we do abundantly reward the labors of this young man, we may be taking the bread from those widows and those orphans, the 777th lay, Captain Peleg. Thou Bildad, roared Peleg, starting up and clattering about the cabin. Blast ye, Captain Bildad, if I had followed thy advice in these matters, I would afore now had a conscience to lug about that would be heavy enough to founder the largest ship that ever sailed round Cape Horn. Captain Peleg, said Bildad steadily, thy conscience may be drawing ten inches of water or ten fathoms, I can't tell. 
But as thou art still an impenitent man, Captain Peleg, I greatly fear lest thy conscience be but a leaky one, and will in the end sink thee foundering down to the fiery pit, Captain Peleg. Fiery pit! Fiery pit! Ye insult me, man, past all natural bearing! Ye insult me! It's an all-fired outrage to tell any human creature that he's bound to hell. Flukes and flames! Bildad, say that again to me and start my soul bolts. But I'll... I'll... Yes, I'll swallow a live goat with all his hair and horns on. Out of the cabin, ye canting, drab-colored son of a wooden gun, a straight wake with ye. As he thundered out of this, he made a rush at Bildad, but with a marvelous, oblique, sliding celerity, Bildad, for that time, eluded him. Alarmed at this terrible outburst between the two principal and responsible owners of the ship, and feeling half a mind to give up all idea of sailing in a vessel so questionably owned and temporarily commanded, I stepped aside from the door to give egress to Bildad, who, I made no doubt, was all eagerness to vanish from before the awakened wrath of Peleg. But to my astonishment, he sat down again on the transom very quietly, and seemed to have not the slightest intention of withdrawing. He seemed quite used to the impenitent Peleg and his ways. As for Peleg, after letting off his rage as he had, there seemed no more left in him, and he too sat down, like a lamb, though he twitched a little as if it still nervously agitated. Whoo! he whistled at last. The squall's gone off to leeward, I think. Bildad, thou used to be good at sharpening a lance. Mend that pen, will ye? My jackknife here needs the grindstone. That's he. Thank ye, Bildad. Now then, my young man, Ishmael's thy name, didn't ye say? Well then, down ye go here, Ishmael, for the three hundredth lay. Captain Peleg, said I, I have a friend with me who wants to ship too. Shall I bring him down tomorrow? To be sure, said Peleg. Fetch him along and we'll look at him. What lay does he want, groaned Bildad, glancing up from the book in which he had again been burying himself. Oh, never mind thee about that, Bildad, said Peleg. Has he ever wailed at any, turning to me? Killed more whales than I can count, Captain Peleg. Well, bring him along then. And after signing the papers, off I went, nothing doubting but that I had done a good morning's work and that the Pequod was the identical ship that Yojo had provided to carry Queequeg and me round the Cape. But I had not proceeded far when I began to bethink me that the captain with whom I was to sail yet remained unseen by me, though indeed in many cases a whale ship will be completely fitted out and receive all her crew on board ere the captain makes himself visible by arriving to take command. For sometimes these voyages are so prolonged and the shore intervals at home so exceedingly brief that if the captain have a family or any absorbing concernment of that sort, he does not trouble himself much about his ship in port, but leaves her to the owners till all is ready for sea. However, it is always as well to have a look at him before irrevocably committing yourself into his hands. Turning back, I accosted Captain Peleg and inquiring where Captain Ahab was to be found. And what dost thou want of Captain Ahab? It's all right enough. Thou art shipped. Yes, but I should like to see him. But I don't think thou wilt be able to at present. I don't know exactly what's the matter with him, but he keeps close inside the house. a sort of sick, and yet he don't look so. In fact, he ain't sick. But no, he isn't sick well either. Anyhow, young man, he won't always see me, so I don't suppose he will thee. He's a queer man, Captain Ahab, so some think, but a good one. Oh, thou'lt like him well enough. No fear, no fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man, Captain Ahab. Doesn't speak much, but when he does speak, then you may well listen. Mark ye, be forewarned, Ahab's above the common. Ahab's been in colleges as well as among the cannibals, been used to deeper wonders than the waves, 
fixed his fiery lance in mightier, stranger foes than whales. His lance, I, the keenest and the surest that out of all our isle. Oh, he ain't Captain Bildad, no, and he ain't Captain Peleg. He's Ahab, a boy, and Ahab of old, thou knowest, was a crowned king. And a very vile one, when that wicked king was slain, the dogs, did they not lick his blood? Come hither to me, hither, hither, said Peleg, with a significance in his eye that almost startled me. Look ye, lad, never say that on board the Pequod, never say it anywhere. Captain Ahab did not name himself. "'Twas a foolish, ignorant whim of his crazy widowed mother "'who died when he was only a twelve-month-old. "'And yet the old squaw, Tistig, at Gayhead, "'said that the name would somehow prove prophetic, "'and perhaps other fools like her may tell thee the same. "'I wish to warn thee, it's a lie. "'I know Captain Ahab well. "'I've sailed with him as a mate years ago. "'I know what he is, a good man.' Not a pious good man, like Bildad, but a swearing good man. Something like me, only there's a good deal more of him. I, I, I know that he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home he was a little out of his mind for a spell. But it was the sharp shooting pains in his bleeding stump that brought that about, as anyone might see. I know, too, that ever since he lost his leg last voyage by that accursed whale, he's been a kind of moody, desperate moody, and savage sometimes, but that will all pass off. And once for all, let me tell thee and assure thee, young man, it's better to sail with a moody good captain than a laughing bad one. So goodbye to thee. And wrong not Captain Ahab, because he happens to have a wicked name. Besides, my boy, he has a wife, not three voyages wedded, a sweet, resigned girl. Think of that. By that sweet girl, that old man has a child. Hold ye then there. Can be any utter, hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad. Stricken, blasted, if he be, Ahab has his humanities. As I walked away, I was full of thoughtfulness. What had been incidentally revealed to me of Captain Ahab filled me with a certain wild vagueness of painfulness concerning him. And somehow, at the time, I felt a sympathy and a sorrow for him. But for I don't know what, unless it was the cruel loss of his leg, and yet I also felt a strange awe of him. But that sort of awe which I cannot at all describe was not exactly awe. I do not know what it was, but I felt it, and it did not disincline me towards him, though I felt impatience at what it seemed like mystery in him, so imperfectly as he was known to me then. However, my thoughts were at length carried in other directions, so that for the present dark Ahab slipped my mind. Chapter 17, The Ramadan As Queequeg's Ramadan, or fasting and humiliation, was to continue all day, I did not choose to disturb him until towards nightfall, for I cherished the greatest respect towards everybody's religious obligations, never mind how comical, and could not find it in my heart to undervalue even a congregation of ants worshipping a toadstool, or those other creatures in certain parts of our earth, who, with a degree of footmanism quite unprecedented in other planets, bow down before the torso of a deceased landed proprietor merely on account of the inordinate possessions yet owned and rented in his name. I say, we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things, and not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans and what not, because of their half-crazy conceits on these subjects. There was Queequeg now, certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yojo and his Ramadan. But what of that? Queequeg thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed to be content, and there let him rest. All our arguing with him would not avail. Let him be, I say." 
and heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Towards evening, when I felt assured that all his performances and rituals must be over, I went up to his room and knocked at the door, but no answer. I tried to open it, but it was fastened inside. Queequeg, said I, softly through the keyhole, all silent. I say, Queequeg, why don't you speak? It's I, Ishmael. But all remained still as before. I began to grow alarmed. I had allowed him such abundant time. I thought he may have had an apoplectic fit. I looked through the keyhole, but the door opening into an odd corner of the room, the keyhole prospect was but a crooked and sinister one. I could only see part of the footboard of the bed and a line of the wall, but nothing more. I was surprised to behold, resting against the wall, the wooden shaft of Queequeg's harpoon, which the landlady the evening previous had taken from him before our mounting to the chamber. That's strange, thought I, but at any rate, since the harpoon stands yonder, and he seldom or never goes abroad without it, therefore he must be inside here, and no possible mistake. Queequeg! Queequeg! All still. Something must have happened. Apoplexy! I tried to burst open the door, but it stubbornly resisted. Running downstairs, I quickly stated my suspicions to the first person I met, the chambermaid. La! La! she cried. I thought something must be the matter. I went to make the bed after breakfast, and the door was locked, and not a mouse to be heard, and it's been just so silent ever since. But I thought, maybe, you had both gone off and locked your baggage in for safe keeping. La! La! Ma'am! Mistress! Murder! Mrs. Hussey! Apoplexy! And with these cries, she ran towards the kitchen, I following. Mrs. Hussey soon appeared with a mustard pot in one hand and a vinegar cruette in the other, having just broken away from the occupation of attending to the casters and scolding her little black boy meantime. Woodhouse, cried I, which way to it? Run, for God's sakes, and fetch something to pry open the door. The axe, the axe, he's had a stroke, depend upon it. And so saying, I was unmethodically rushing upstairs again, empty-handed, when Mrs. Hussey interposed the mustard pot and vinaigrette and the entire caster of her countenance. What's the matter with you, young man? Get the axe! For God's sake, run for the doctor, someone, while I pry it open. Look here, said the landlady, quickly putting down the vinegar cruette so as to have one hand free. Look here, are you talking about prying open any of my doors? And with that, she seized my arm. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with you, shipmate? In as calm but rapid a manner as possible, I gave her to understand the whole case. Unconsciously clapping the vinegar cruette to one side of her nose, she ruminated for an instant, then exclaimed, No, I haven't seen it since I put it there. Running to a little closet under the landing of the stairs, she glanced in, and returning, told me that Queequeg's harpoon was missing. He's killed himself, she cried. It's unfortunate Stig's done over again. There goes another counterpane. God pity this poor mother. It will be the ruin of my house. Has the poor lad a sister? Where's that girl? There, Betty. Go to Snarls, the painter, and tell him to paint me a sign with no suicides permitted here and no smoking in the parlor. Might as well kill both birds at once. Kill? The Lord be merciful to his ghost. What's that noise there? You, young man, avast there. And running up after me, she caught me as I was again trying to force open the door. I don't allow it. I won't have my premises spoiled. Go for the locksmith. There's one about a mile from here, but avast, putting her hand in her side pocket. Here's a key that'll fit, I guess. Let's see. And with that, she turned it in the lock. But alas, Queequeg's supplemental bolt remained withdrawn within. Have to burst it open, said I, and was running down the entry a little for a good start when the lady caught me, again vowing I should not break down her premises, 
but I tore from her, and with a sudden bodily rush, dashed myself full against the mark. With a prodigious noise, the door flew open, and the knob slamming against the wall, sent the plaster to the ceiling, and there, good heavens, there sat Queequeg, altogether cool and self-collected, right in the middle of the room, squatting on his hams and holding Jojo on top of his head. He looked neither one way nor the other, but sat like a carved image with scarce a sign of active life. Queequeg, said I, going up to him. Queequeg, what's the matter with you? He hain't been a-sitting so all day, has he? said the landlady. But all we said, not a word could we drag out of him. I almost felt like pushing him over so as to change his position, for it was almost intolerable. It seemed so painfully and unnaturally constrained, especially as in all probability he had been sitting so for upwards of eight or ten hours, going to without his regular meals. Mrs. Hussey, said I, he's alive at all events, so leave us, if you please, and I will see to this strange affair myself. Closing the door upon the landlady, I endeavored to prevail upon Queequeg to take a chair, but in vain. There he sat, and all he could do, for all my polite arts and blandishments, he would not move a peg, nor say a single word, nor even look at me, nor notice my presence in the slightest way. I wonder, thought I, if this can possibly be part of his Ramadan. Do they fast on their hams that way in his native island? It must be so. Yes, it's part of his creed, I suppose. Well, then, let him rest. He'll get up sooner or later, no doubt. It can't last forever, thank God. And his Ramadan only comes once a year, and I don't believe it's very punctual then. I went down to supper. After sitting a long time listening to the long stories of some sailors who had just come up from a plum pudding voyage, as they called it, that is, a short whaling voyage in a schooner or brig, confined to the north of the line in the Atlantic Ocean only. After listening to these plum puddingers till nearly eleven o'clock, I went upstairs to go to bed, feeling quite sure by this time Queequeg must certainly have brought his Ramadan to a termination. But no, there he was, just where I had left him. He had not stirred an inch. I began to grow vexed with him. I began to grow vexed with him. It seemed so downright senseless and insane to be sitting there all day and half the night on his hams in a cold room, holding a piece of wood on his head. For heaven's sake, Queequeg, get up and shake yourself. Get up and have some supper. You'll starve. You'll kill yourself, Queequeg. But not a word did he reply. Despairing of him, therefore, I determined to go to bed and to sleep, and no doubt, before a great while, he would follow me. But previous to turning in, I took my heavy bearskin jacket and threw it over him, as it promised to be a very cold night, and he had nothing but his ordinary round jacket on. For some time, do all I would, I could not get into the faintest doze. I had blown out the candle, and the mere thought of Queequeg, not four feet off, sitting there in that uneasy position, stark alone in the cold and dark, this made me really wretched. Think of it, sleeping all night in the same room with a wide awake pagan on his hams in the dreary, unaccountable Ramadan. But somehow I dropped off at last and knew nothing more till break of day. When looking over the bedside, there squatted Queequeg, as if he had been screwed down to the floor. But as soon as the first glimpse of sun entered the window, up he got, with stiff and grating joints, but with a cheerful look, limped towards me where I lay, pressed his forehead against mine, and said his Ramadan was over. Now, as I before hinted, I have no objection to any person's religion, be it what it may, so long as that person does not kill or insult any other person, because that other person don't believe it also. But when a man's religion becomes really frantic, when it is a positive torment to him, and, in fine, makes this earth of ours an uncomfortable inn to lodge in, 
Then I think it high time to take that individual aside and argue the point with him. And just so I now did with Queequeg. Queequeg, said I, get into bed now and lie and listen to me. I then went on, beginning with the rise and progress of the primitive religions and coming down to the various religions of the present time, during which time I labored to show Queequeg that all these Lents, Ramadans, and prolonged ham-squattings in cold, cheerless rooms were stark nonsense, bad for the health, useless for the soul, opposed, in short, to the obvious laws of hygiene and common sense. I told him, too, that he being in other things such an extremely sensible and sagacious savage, it pained me, very badly pained me, to see him now so deplorably foolish about this ridiculous Ramadan of his. Besides, argued I, fasting makes the body cave in, hence the spirit caves in, and all thoughts born of a fast must necessarily be half-starved. This is the reason why most dyspeptic religionists cherish such melancholy notions about their hereafters. In one word, Queequeg, said I, rather digressively, hell is an idea first born on an undigested apple dumpling, and since then perpetuated through the hereditary dyspepsias nurtured by Ramadans. I then asked Queequeg whether he himself was ever troubled with dyspepsia, expressing the idea very plainly so that he could take it in. He said no, only upon one memorable occasion. It was after a great feast given by his father the king on the gaining of a great battle wherein 50 of the enemy had been killed by about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and all cooked and eaten that very evening. No more, Queequeg, said I, shuddering. That will do for I knew the inferences without his further hinting them. I had seen a sailor who had visited that very island, and he told me that it was the custom, when a great battle had been gained there, to barbecue all the slain in the yard or garden of the victor. And then, one by one, they were placed in great wooden trenchers, and garnished round like a palau, with breadfruit and coconuts, and with some parsley in their mouths, were set round with the victor's compliments to all his friends, just as though these presents were so many Christmas turkeys. After all, I do not think that my remarks about religion made much impression upon Queequeg, because in the first place he somehow seemed dull of hearing on that important subject, unless considered from his own point of view, and in the second place he did not more than one-third understand me, couch my ideas simply as I would, and finally, he no doubt thought he knew a good deal more about the true religion than I did. He looked at me with a sort of condescending concern and compassion, as though he thought it a great pity that such a sensible young man should be so hopelessly lost to evangelical pagan piety. At last we rose and dressed, and Queequeg, taking a prodigiously hearty breakfast of chowders of all sorts, so that the landlady should not make much profit by reason of his Ramadan, we sallied out to board the Pequod, sauntering along and picking our teeth with halibut bones. This has been Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Please join us next time as we follow the adventures of Ishmael and Queequeg.